0: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.
1: If you look at nature and climate, what you need to be doing is getting innovation focused plus regulation coming in, which ensures that if 90% of companies do the right thing, there won't be a 10% that just undercut that.
2: Hello, and welcome to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. I'm Alana Weston, Chairman of Selfridges Group, and I believe that sustainability will be the next big disruptor of my industry. It must be placed at the heart of business strategy if we're to overcome the climate crisis and transition to a cleaner and more just economy. With COP26 still fresh in our minds, I wanted to take the opportunity to speak to an entrepreneur who's taken his strategic and leadership skills, as well as his passion for healthy and sustainable food across the world of policymaking. This week, I'm joined by Henry Dimbleby. Henry spent time as a journalist, cook, and management consultant before co-founding the healthy fast food restaurant chain, Leon. His philanthropic work includes campaigning tirelessly for healthy meals for school children and he recently set up the charity Chefs in Schools. Most recently, Henry was appointed lead non-executive board member at DEFRA, where he's led a national food strategy, publishing a groundbreaking review of the UK food system in 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Henry.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So before we dive into COP26 and how to transform the food system, can you tell us a bit about your own sustainability journey?
1: Sure. I mean, actually, it was a bit of a random walk. When we started Leon, it was essentially a selfish venture, both for us and our customers. We wanted to eat food that tasted good and was good for you. So, you know, it was a fighting against all of the food on the high street that was either chilled sandwiches or fried chicken. But as we got to understand our supply chain a bit more, we began to understand quite what an impact food has on the environment and on society. But I think really it wasn't until doing this work on the national food strategy that I was really struck by quite how dominant food is in the biosphere. You know, if you think about the problems of the world today, of, of nature, biodiversity, deforestation, the cleaning out of our oceans, fresh water scarcity, fresh water pollution, all of those, by far the biggest cause is the food system. And if you think about climate change, energy and food are far and ahead beyond any other causes of climate change. So it was a kind of gradual journey, which really crystallized during the two years I spent working on the food strategy, that if we don't solve food, we're not going to solve the problem of sustainability.
2: So how did you end up becoming a
1: government advisor? Well, again, that was quite a kind of series of coincidences. So it started meeting Michael Gove, the politician, when he was at education, and we, uh, we, we met at a friend's house, we talked a lot about school food. He was under pressure at the time from Jamie Oliver, who was pushing for more reforms in, in the area of school food, and he kind of rang me up three weeks later, four weeks later, and said, look, would you like to come and lead a review in this area, which I did with John, my business partner, John Vincent, uh, called the School Food Plan, and... That led to some quite big changes in schools. It led to cookery being compulsory on the curriculum forever up to the age of 14. It led to universal infant free school meals. And then, you know, many years later, Gove was at DEFRA and he rang me up again and said, look, I want someone to do a review of the food system. Will you do that? And at the time, I happened to have, John had taken over being CEO of Leon. I happened to have time and I thought, A, I think there's a problem, and B, I think I've got the skills to do it. So again, a slightly random walk into doing something that's become a massive part of my life.
2: And it's an incredibly clear strategy. It takes a very complex system, as you've just described, and is able to make the connection, which I don't think people always see, between food, health, health poverty and climate can you explain how you think about those interconnections
1: when we started everyone said you've got to take a systems approach and we spent quite a lot of time saying to people what do you mean by a systems approach one of the great things about working in government is you can literally ring up or ask to see any clever person on the planet who is has a view so we rang up all the cleverest people on the planet and said what do you mean in in food what do you mean by a systems approach And there's one view of the systems approach, which is kind of manifested in there's a thing called the obesity map. Which looks like a tangled ball of string or a spider's web. And people said, This is systems, so you've got to realise that everything's connected. And, I, and we looked at that, we thought, Well, that's, that's not very helpful. Actually, it makes you think, Should I even bother? Because it's so complicated. And another view was the fact that it's distributed across government, there's different responsibilities in the food system, competing agendas. And that is important, but it's not really the root of the problems. And we found the systems ideas that we took in systems dynamic, the science, which basically says you have to look at the feedback mechanisms and what are the kind of dominant things that are causing the system to work in a way that it shouldn't. And we identified two. One, what we call the junk food cycle, which is a, an interaction between our evolved appetite and the commercial incentives of companies that means that they are incented to put more money into developing, selling the bad stuff, and we then eat it, and that spirals out of control. And the other was what we call the invisibility of nature, which is the fact that nature just isn't measured in any of the ways in which we choose to measure human success. So in companies, balance sheets, p GDP. And so we started with how do you reset those two feedback mechanisms?
2: Everything is changing so much, whether it's in business or politics, and we need to address the entire system. And I thought it was very interesting how you talk about scale and how those feedback mechanisms are driving scale for those businesses. But there are negative externalities. On the other hand, we need scale in order to drive the good impacts. How can we scale those good technologies that can help us address the climate crisis?
1: So if you look at nature and climate explicitly, and I think there are connections with health... But I think sometimes they're overblown and you can think about the nature and the climate piece individually. What you need to be doing is getting innovation focused in the right direction. But you need to have, in the end, these feedback loops. Businesses can't do it on their own. So the way we try to frame it is that actually businesses who people see often as wicked and evil, no one gets out of bed in a board meeting and things how do we make children sick? Or how can we create a product that will ensure that our great-grandchildren have a miserable life? But if they don't do things, then the competition will. So you need to have a combination of direction of travel from government, which gets those innovators, funders, excited that there will be a future for this, plus regulation coming in, which ensures that if 90% of companies do the right thing, there won't be a 10% that just undercut that and undo that the harm's done. So I think that the combination of scale and care, local care, people caring, it's both, both things. You need both things.
2: So talk to me about tax. You've proposed a sugar and salt tax. And as you say, I mean, more and more business leaders are asking for a level playing field so that they can actually do the good things that they'd like to do. How could tax be a useful lever in changing the dynamic?
1: Well, so on the, on the health side, this toxic interaction between appetite and commercial incentive, what is fascinating is that behind the scenes, almost every CEO, and because I worked in the industry, they kind of, I guess, trusted me to understand their issues. But privately, they'll all say we can't do this without state intervention. So if you look at, you know, the aisles of sweets that face you when you Go to some big chains. At the moment, if they remove those, it would destroy their business model. And so they are stuck. There are then people who are coming public. Dave Lewis, who you've had on this podcast, who used to be CEO of Tesco, is calling for more intervention. And actually, some people like Roger White's had it, Greg's, who even within their business are calling for regulation. There are products that are very difficult to reformulate. It's quite hard at the moment, for example, to reformulate toffee, which is effectively sugar, or um, value jam, which is effectively just sugar, because it doesn't have any fruit in it. And in order for those people who are really struggling to get by, we actually hypothecated, we took about a billion pounds that tax would raise and proposed that that get invested directly in supporting diets of people, of the poorest people in society, at least affluent. When I started kind of getting publicly involved in the political world with the school food plan back in 2013. There was a shift whereby kind of thinking about how you feed children, how you farm, was no longer viewed as something you talked about because you were too woolly-minded to think about teaching people maths properly. But I think now, interestingly, there is literally no one in the political space who doesn't see these as huge problems. The debate now is how you tackle them and how you tackle them in a way that you can get through politically. So I think the belief is now almost, with the exception of very small groups of people, the belief, the mindset is there. I do think the mindset has changed.
2: It does feel like it's changing. I mean, young people are eating less meat. That seems to be the fact. Maybe that's only in a certain demographic. But, you know, to me, the not eating meat, or at least eating less meat, is an example of systems change. It's a very, very simple thing. And it's also something that the individual can choose to do quite simply. And I think that's the best way to drive a movement, is to give each individual something that they can do. And then business... Government almost fall in line. I mean, how do you see the relationship between regulation, consumer demand and business shifts?
1: So I think the meat debate is fascinating. It's a really good example of this. And this is one area where I think businesses can really help by showing that it's possible to... Eat less meat without it being seen, either as kind of war, without you having to be a leading heart liberal, it's okay to eat less meat, you're not making a statement against anything, and that it can be really enjoyable.
2: Because it's eating more plants, isn't it? I mean, that's the other yeah. way of putting it. And maybe that is the positive energy we need to get behind plants, as opposed to the negative energy behind meat.
1: Yeah, it's eating more plants. You know, plants, uh, animal, particularly animals who are kind of not grazed on grass, but are grazed on crops that would be fit for human consumption. The protein conversion is 25 to 1. It's incredibly inefficient to take plants and put them through a huge, weighty, sentient being for a long period of time. And just eating a few more plants directly would help everyone and hurt no one. Interestingly, in terms of, I think, Elon Musk in Tesla, it's really interesting the way he kind of, like, the trunk was very kind of... You know, electric cars could have been the vegetarianism of our generation. It could have been the thing that the kind of woolly-minded liberals wanted to do. And I think that uh, Elon Musk and Tesla did a fantastic service to the transition to to driving by making it just as exciting. And I think that within meat as well, we need to like, you know, just the food needs to be as good, as exciting. It needs not to be a cultural issue.
2: So let's talk about COP. I mean, to my mind, food didn't get nearly the airtime it should have. I mean, do you think that's true? And it's a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, I think you were saying could be even more, as well as the impacts on biodiversity. And, you know, a lot of the food that we eat is grown in some of the poorest countries of the world. So why didn't it feel like it was in the room, the food discussion.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was insane in some ways. The the debate was biodiversity and climate. That was how it was framed. And that is, like, that is food. That that is where, that that is the food system. And as you uh, say, the reason I say it could be more is because at the moment we need the land. It's not just about the carbon emissions it produces, it's we need the land to sequester carbon. So... In this country, for example, the agricultural system currently emits about 70 megatons of carbon a year. We need it to sequester about 16 megatons. So we need it to actively absorb emissions from other sectors. And so you had food all around the center of COP, but hardly there was a methane agreement, but hardly anything about land use, hardly anything about food in the center. And I was quite angry about that originally, I just kind of didn't understand it. But actually I think that well in advance the focus of this COP was all about trying to get developing nations to sign up to more aggressive targets and wasn't really about biodiversity and climate. And I think what was someone said, look, this is introduced me a new phrase, which is cop to cop. You had all of those people around the fringe talking about food outside the Citadel, and COP to cop, we need those people to storm the Citadel so that by the next COP, food is right at the center. And I'm actually quite optimistic. I think there's so much energy around the fringe on food that I'm quite optimistic that that will happen. I think that has been heard now loud and clear.
2: I mean, I think partly how I got into sustainability was this idea of selling the solutions as opposed to selling the problems, because the activists are great at selling the problems. But we business people have a role in selling the solutions. How do you think things actually get done in politics. I mean, can you give us some insight into how policy and politics fit together? You've said there's all these clever people you can meet. Yeah. But how does that actually turn into action, decision-making that will filter down to business or other stakeholders?
1: Well, so I think there are two things that go on. If, if, you think, if you're talking about politics as specific policy decisions... You have a kind of bubbling away of ideas from think tanks and from NGOs and from, you know, various people and changing the narrative, making certain spaces more easier for politicians to move into. And I'll give a specific example in a second. And then you have the kind of cut and thrust of actual policy, you know, when you make the decision, which happens at manifesto time, it happens in response to particular issues, and it's quite random. So you have to create the space, which is very strategic, and then spot the opportunities, uh, which is very tactical. So, for example, look a few examples, Universal Infant Free School Meals, which was part of the school food plan, was the one thing that the government hadn't decided. It was a recommendation, not a part of the plan when we published Michael Gove at Chequers slipped a note to Danny Alexander, who was Lib Dem, saying maybe we should put this together in our manifestos. And then Nick Clegg and David Laws saw a, a kind of opportunistic, an opportunity for them to propose a policy. And before the manifesto, they did a deal with the Tories to make it happen. If you look at the holiday activity and food programmes, which is one of our recommendations, from this, which is enabling anyone on a free school meal to have activities and good food through the holidays at their schools. That was something that people understood the benefits. It was kind of there. It was a great idea, but it costed quite a lot. Yeah. And then Marcus Rashford last campaigned for it. And then suddenly it happened in October half term. So like all of the policies that I've been involved in have always had that combination of making the case, making the strategic argument, making people know it's a good idea. And then some random set of circumstances actually enable the policy to be implemented.
2: Well, that is a great piece of insight. Because the last question I wanted to ask you, which I asked Sally Jewell, who was Secretary of the Interior for Barack Obama, is democracy fit for purpose when it comes to climate? And what about business? Is business fit for purpose when it comes to climate?
1: But I mean, I think you have to kind of slightly lean on Winston Churchill here, which is, you know, d- democracy is the, uh, the worst form of government except all the other forms that we've tried. And I, and I think that business is the same. You know, capitalism is the worst way of organizing the world, except all of the other <laughs> things that we've tried. And I think that the, the most important thing with business is to recognize it needs regulation, so there are things that you can do in your business that can have a massive impact on the world. In particular, actually I think changing people's minds and then sometimes with a kind of huge innovations. The ability independently, any one business to completely transform what they do against the market is very difficult. So you think you need the combination of people in businesses wanting to change and government creating the level playing field that rewards those people who are at the forefront of that change.
2: And now for our quick fire round. What's your definition of sustainability?
1: Something that you can continue to do forever.
2: And is there such a thing as sustainable
1: growth? Uh, not in the long term, because the third law of thermodynamics means that all energy will be evenly distributed, and the universe will be a grey fog of uh, matter. But within, you know, if you define a, a period of a hundred years, two hundred years, if we can solve energy, then there is no reason why you can't continue to have growth in people's style of living.
2: What's most important: consumer demand, legislation, or innovation? All three. And who will help us reach our climate goals fastest, the disruptors who bring us brand new products or the transformers who are changing the focus of existing brands?
1: So we talked about, about that at Leon. Is it like, do you reform a corrupt regime, or do you, does, the, does the revolution take over? And obviously, in France, the answer was the revolution takes over. In England, the corrupt regime was reformed. I think it's impossible to know.
2: And what three things are you hoping will come out of COP26?
1: One thing which is that the outside, the the focus on food and the fringes are transmitted onto the inside by the next cop.
2: And what three things are essential to leading a sustainable business?
1: I think energy, a creation of belief and understanding within the organization and government regulation.
2: Henry, thank you so much for coming on to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do take a moment to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. This is the last episode of season two. This episode was brought to you by Selfridges Group and Intelligence Squared. It was edited by Tom Hall with technical assistance from Mark Roberts. The executive producer was Farah Jasset. I'm Alana Weston, and this is How to Lead a Sustainable Business.